So guys, we are continuing our uh, series in the book of Genesis. So a couple of things. If I have not met you, I'm Steve. I help out around here. Um, and if you are an elementary school student and you are sitting in today, super glad to have you. If you want, we've got some clipboards in the back that if you want to just draw the mustache the whole time while you're sitting there, that's cool. And we'll get you some candy at the end. So you can just work on that sucker the whole time. It's up to you guys. But um, yeah, we're super glad that you guys are here. And tonight um, we are going to talk about probably the most interesting topic in the Bible. Okay, The Bible is full of very interesting topics. And tonight... We are probably hitting one of the most interesting. They're called genealogies. All right. I love it. Everybody's excited for genealogies. As I was excited to get assigned this text to teach. However, you see, genealogies are something that in our culture we don't value it some because America is kind of this self-made man, self-made woman type of culture. You know, the whole rags to riches story. It doesn't matter where you come from. It's really mattering where you're going. And yet the Bible is chock full of genealogies. Now, here's the problem with genealogies. Half the time, we don't know what's going on. Half the time, we can't pronounce the names. You know, preachers joke all the time, if you're doing a genealogy, get up, just read it as fast as you can and get through it, and then we're good to go. However, Paul says in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed and inspired. And when he's writing that to Timothy, he's writing that about the Old Testament. And that includes genealogy. So for us as Christians, when we come to a text like this, we can't just jump over it. We can't just skip it, even though it may be tough to. But we have to look at this text and see it as God has inspired it to be. So would you open up your Bibles? We're going to be in Genesis chapter 36. And the point of genealogies, what they do is they tell a story. They can either speak of, of triumph, you know, of a people who are, you know, putting their hope in God and seeing God be faithful to them through a hopeless situation, or it could really be, you know, a generation that decides to walk away from God, walk away from blessing, and walk away from deep connection with Him. So tonight, Genesis 36 is where we're going to be, so grab your Bibles, open up there, and we're going to look at the generations of Esau. But first, I'm just going to quickly go over this puzzle box that we've got, that we've used a lot here. So... Puzzle Box essentially breaks down the book of Genesis in three sections, Invitation, Disruption, and Foundations of Restoration. And so underneath, in the Invitation section, that's where God has chosen to invite mankind into what he has made. In the Invitation section, God makes creation, makes it beautiful, and then says, Adam and Eve, come in and live within that. You see beauty, you see joy, you see prosperity in that time. And then when you get to Adam's generation, what you see is the rejected invitation. You see... Adam and Eve walk away from God, and you see the following descendants of Adam and Eve continue to walk away. And then we get to Noah's generation. That kind of starts the disruption area. And then this is literally where God has chosen to actively get involved in human creation and disrupt what is happening. Genesis 6 says that, that every man, his, his intentions of his heart were evil, any and all the time. So God had to flood the earth in order to wipe things out, to start fresh again, and yet Noah, once he gets off the boat, you know, is, gets drunk with wine, and then just whole issues again start up. So again, there's another disruption that happens in Shem's generation where we went through the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, you see you know, mankind essentially putting themselves up against God and saying, hey, we want a better name. And because of that, they chose to uh, build a temple for themselves and pursue a name for themselves. And then after that, we get into the Foundations of Restoration section, which is where we're in today. You know, Terah's generation, that's really the whole thing about Abram. Abram, you know, being called by God to give blessing and covenant, so on and so forth. 
And then last week, we hit really hard on Ishmael and Isaac and what happened in the midst of that. So tonight, we are going to be in Esau. And what's interesting about Esau's generation is that it falls under the context of foundations for restoration. It's going to be confusing later, but right now, the one thing we have to remember about Esau's generation is this. They chose the wrong trajectory. Instead of walking towards God, they walked away from God. So as long as we look at this genealogy and get that piece in our head, we're going to understand its flow. We're going to see where it's headed. So having just finished Isaac's generation, summing up this way, complete and utter dysfunction, right? Remember last week, Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. You know, Isaac favors Esau, where Rebecca, Rebecca favored Jacob. You know, Rebecca tricking old and blind Isaac that Jacob is actually Esau, little red hair on the arms and tricks him and gets the birthright that way. Esau gets so furious that he swears that after his father dies, he will murder his brother. And then it just keeps going on and on. As we follow Jacob's line, we see that Laban then tricks Jacob again, and then he has to marry Leah, and then he has to marry Rachel, and it just becomes a major issue over and over. Then they can't have kids, so then Leah starts offering up her wife and says, hey, why don't you just go sleep with her and then have kids, okay? And then that just keeps going and going. Another wife, another wife, another wife, and Throughout all of this, God is continuing to be faithful in the midst of the brokenness. That's what God is up to. But tonight, we're starting in Genesis 36, 1 through 5, and it says this. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Oholibamah, the daughter of Anon, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jewesh, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So first, Moses starts by making the point of this text. He interchanges Esau and Edom. So you'll see it here. Again, very first verse, if we want to head back just one slide. You'll see the generations of Esau, that is Edom. So throughout this text, we're going to keep seeing that. And what's interesting is that most of the time, you don't equate the name of a person with the nation. That just normally doesn't happen. You don't think Abraham Lincoln would go, USA. I mean, he's a part of the USA, but he doesn't represent the United States of America. However, in this context, Moses is writing this and saying that Esau is Edom. So we have to remember that. And in equating the two, Moses is trying to remind his audience of who Edom was. So this helps us by understanding kind of the historical context where Genesis 36 comes from, as well as the history of the nation of Edom. So the historical context is like this. Most scholars think that Genesis was written during the Exodus. So as Moses is leading his people out of Egypt, they go along a path, and as they go along a path, Edom is one of the nations in which they go around. So if you're the Israelites and you're hearing the book of Genesis, when Moses is equating Esau to Edom, you're remembering the country that you just walked around. And then secondly, you have the history of Edom. Edom is known all throughout the Bible as one of the most wicked nations that goes against God. Again and again and again. Edom is a people group that continually decide to turn away from God. So those who are reading this book have to remember, okay, if Esau is Edom, then how does this happen? How does Esau, the one who's supposed to get the birthright, the one who's supposed to get the blessing from God, 
How does he go from the one who's supposed to carry the covenant of God to the one who starts one of the most wicked nations on the earth known to man at the time? And the answer is the wrong trajectory. That's the answer, the wrong trajectory. So let's take a look at verse 2. We're going to see how this happened. Verse 2 shows really clearly what happened. He marries Canaanite women. So you have Adah, Oholibama, and Ishmael's daughter, Basemath. Two issues that come up with that. Culturally speaking, at this time, you don't marry outside of your tribe. It's not, it's, it's a major deal. It's not something small. It's a major, major problem. So when we think of the early 1900s, you know, and there was interracial marriage happening, right around that time, people were looking at that and saying, hey, that's a problem. Think even more back in that day, intertribally, you don't marry. It's just against the rules. Because people cared about bloodline, heritage, you know, legacy, right? That's what they cared about. So you have to have a pure bloodline. You have to have a pure heritage in order to really be pure by God. And see, but one of the things all throughout the Old Testament you see is that there's a warning not to marry outside of your tribe. Because what happens when you marry outside of your tribe, you do that, you fall in love with a woman, you marry outside the tribe, and what happens is that your devotion to Yahweh ceases. And then your devotion to other gods increases. This is what happens to King Solomon, if you don't remember, in 1 Kings 10. One of the most amazing, wise, rich, powerful rulers at the time. And what takes him down? His love for foreign women. It led him away from Yahweh, and that's what ended up happening in dividing the kingdom. So, but most importantly, not only was intertribal marriage an issue, but most importantly, this came from his horribly bitter decision against his dad. Right? Genesis says that in uh, verses 6 and 8, that Esau chooses to marry from among the Canaanite women because he saw Isaac give the blessing to Jacob, and he saw that the Canaanite women displeased his father. So because of the hatred that he had towards his brother, and because of the hatred that he had towards his dad, he chose, in his own bitterness, to marry outside the tribe. And then you see verse 4. You know, verse 4 speaks of the sons that are born to Esau and those Canaanite women. And verse 5 points out something really specific. There's two locations that we're going to see in this text. You're going to see the location of Canaan and the location of Sire. Now, Canaan again, Old Testament history, again, is a very wicked nation. As uh, the Israelites get into the land of Canaan, you know, you have Aaron and Caleb go out to, to, to look out and check out the spies, and they're going to go figure out what's going on with these giants so that they can take over the lands. But the Canaanite people were, were polytheistic people. They believed in multiple gods and multiple religions. And because of that, they were against Yahweh. They were against following God. And yet, what we have to remember is that Esau was one of the first residents of Canaan. It says, verse 5, right there. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So that's the location where he was. So it's a cursed nation, but Esau became a part of that cursed nation. In fact, he may have been one of the ones who spearheaded that movement. You see, so let's take a look at where Esau's next in the text. So he goes from Canaan, and now he goes into the land of Sire. So let's take a look at verse 6. It says this. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all of his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Sire, 
Esau is Edom. Again, another footnote to remind you, when you think Esau, you've got to think the wicked nation of Edom. So from this passage, we just see that people have a ton of stuff. You've got both of those brothers who have a ton of livestock. And really, essentially, in that time, it's saying that these guys were incredibly wealthy. But we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of stuff that they couldn't even live in the same land together. So when Jacob was coming up, Esau chose to move. And Esau moved down into the hill country of Sire. So if you were to look at a map of, the old, or a map of Israel, you have the Dead Sea on top, you have the Jordan River, and then you have the Red Sea on the bottom. And as people come from Egypt, this is where the land of Edom would be. And this is where the people of God tried to pass through during their Exodus journey. So again, the side note, Esau is Edom. And then we'll look at verse 9. It says this, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the country of Sire. So Moses points out this verse and continues for the next 37 verses, this genealogy of these are his people from uh, the land of Sire, the Edomites. So four times in this text, we only read it twice, but four times in this text you're going to see that little footnote that says that is Esau is Edom. So four times in 47 verses, when you do Bible study methods and you learn how to study the Bible, when there's repetition, it's something you look at. If you say the same thing four times in 47 verses, and they're all in parenthetical citations, take notice. Let's see what God is doing. And what Moses is saying here is, remember, Esau is Edom. So we're not going to go into those 37 names. I had a hard enough time reading all of those names in the first five verses, so we're not going to read 37 verses of names. But what we have to remember is that Esau is the father of the Edomites. And the story of the Edomites all throughout Scripture is one of wickedness. So what we'll do is we'll spend some time talking about the history of Edom. So how did this whole mess get rolling? How did this whole mess get started? So Esau makes a couple of bad decisions, and then this whole nation comes from it. So first, I want to take, take you to this. So the history of Edom, you have Edom forbidding Israel to go through their land during the exile in Numbers. So in Numbers, like I said earlier, as Israel was coming out of the Exodus, they didn't go through the land of Edom. They were prevented because Edom did not want them to go through. Edom prevented their travel. Edom actually came up against them in arms and said, you cannot pass through. You have Moses and Aaron and other leaders saying, hey, we'll just go down the king's highway. We're not going to go to the vineyards. We're not going to go to the livestock. Because if you would imagine, there's a lot of people on the Exodus walking through. It would be pretty easy for some guy to walk by, grab a couple of you know, vines, grab a livestock, get that cow in with your mix, and you're taken along. It's pretty easy to do that. And they're like, no, 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 we won't even touch any of that. We're just going to go on the king's highway. And yet, Edom opposes them. They won't let them go down. You see, Edom becomes that nation right from the get-go of bad decision after bad decision after bad decision that says that Edom goes against God's people. Next, you have Edom frequently fights Israel all throughout its history. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first and second Chronicles. You know the books that you and I love devotionally. Those ones, we really read them. We really care about those. Those are the ones that there's a lot of history of Edom being a nation that comes against Israel again and again. As Israel grows in power, they, they pose a threat to other nations, so Edom comes against them, fights them. And what we'll remember is that in the hill country of Sire, back in that time, if you had a city on a hill, it was a powerful infrastructure. Because in order to be attacked, you have to go up a hill, which means if you're on top, you're able to look down the hill and, and see when attack is coming. 
So Edom was even positioned geographically in a way that made them a very, very powerful nation. So as we'll see throughout, you know, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, that Edom, time and time again, goes against King David, goes against the kings of Israel, and is against them. And does not want their plan to, to be prosperous. They want to thwart that plan. And in so doing, they're a nation that goes against God's people. And see, as we continue talking about Edom, Edom was also a nation that took part of the destruction of Jerusalem, of Solomon's temple in 587 B.C. So that's one of the biggest points in, in Israelite history is when Solomon's temple gets destroyed. So you have the Babylonians coming in, and by that time, the Edomites and the Babylonians were working together. Babylonians come in and really destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And again, it's a physical sign of Edom showing God's people, hey, we're against you. We're against your plan. We're against your purposes. And that's what we're for. We're against you. So after that happens, you have all of these prophets, right, in your Bible, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these other prophets. And all these prophets fit into the history. They fit into First and Second Kings. They fit into First and Second Samuel. They fit into First and Second Chronicles. So then, in light of that situation, you've got prophets, God speaking through the prophets, giving, declaring judgments against Edom. So they're saying, Jeremiah says this about Edom in Jeremiah 49. Basra was the capital city of Edom. And Jeremiah says this. Basra will become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse. So when God's wrath comes upon Edom, it's, it's a, this is a, a beautifully horrifying text. It says, the warriors of Edom's heart will be like that of a woman in birthing pains. How many of you moms remember those birthing pains? Powerful, strong, crazy. Makes your heart scared in moments, but excited in other moments. Those pains are powerful. These Edomite powerful warriors are going to feel the pangs of childbirth because of God's wrath. That's, that's the likening there. You see, here's what Ezekiel says about Edom in Ezekiel 25. Because Edom acted vengefully against the house of Judah and and really destroyed that temple, he says this, I will make them desolate and cut them off from both man and beast. Essentially saying, I'm going to cut off your food and water supply. God says, I'm coming after you. I'm going to cut you off because God will bring judgment upon Edom because it's a nation that goes against him and his purposes. The craziest one for me is Obadiah. Obadiah is a book that we rarely read oftentimes, but the entire book is devoted to the destruction of Edom. The entire book goes against this nation, Esau's genealogy, this nation. God speaks up and he says the whole book is all about their destruction. It's crazy to think that there may be a couple passages here, a couple passages here that talk about the destruction of Edom, but God literally uses Obadiah to write four chapters, and it gets canonized as a book of the Bible that's purpose is about the judgment of Edom. It's crazy. Malachi says something about Edom, too, in 1 verse 4. You know, you, you have Edom being personified in the beginning of the text and saying, hey, if you destroy us, God, we're going to rebuild, we're going to rebuild. And God says this. You're not going to rebuild because if you do, I'll destroy it again. And then I'll destroy it again. Because these are the people that the Lord is angry with forever. That's a crazy thought that God would say that to people. That he's angry with them forever. So there's wrath, there's judgment that comes upon Edom. And then you have Edom destroyed in 300 B.C. And here's where it gets a little interesting. 
So once Edom gets destroyed, the, the members of the Edomites become a part of the Jewish race. And then they're called the Edomians. So the Edomians are all a part in the New Testament. And what's crazy about this is that one of the most prominent Edomians was one of the people that tried to kill Jesus. King Herod, Matthew chapter 1. He, scholars all throughout say that he was an Edomian. He was from the race of the Edomites. And even still in, in the New Testament, God is thwarting the people who are trying to come against him. You have King Herod literally destroying all the youngest of Israel to try to get Jesus gone. And as he does that, it's a reminder that, again, the Edomite people now in the New Testament are still against God's purposes and his plans. All of this gets traced back to a cup of soup. All of that. You're tired. Esau comes in and he's about to, to the, the scripture says he's about to pass out and die. And so he, ch- he chooses to forfeit everything for a meal. And then that was first bad decision. Second bad decision, he marries Canaanite women out of spite and bitterness. And then the snowball just keeps going, doesn't it? It just keeps going. Okay, so that was a lot of history to take in. Okay, I nerd out on this stuff. You guys probably don't. Totally cool. But as I'm researching this, there's just this sense of of awe to see how God allows people to walk away from blessing. It's a scary thing to think about. So, but for us, as we look at this text, how, how does this text meet us? So how does Esau's generation about the wickedness and wickedness and wickedness, how does that meet us today? Again, we have to remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the Old Testament is written for our instruction. So that means it's inspired by God, it's here for our instruction. So what does that mean for your life and for my life? If we were to sum up everything, this is the statement that I want you guys to walk away with tonight. All of us are one bad decision away from turning our trajectory away from relationship with God and towards rebellion away from Him. All of us are one bad decision away from turning our trajectory away from relationship with God and towards rebellion away from God. Now, that's how trajectories work, don't it? You make one decision and it starts you on a path. You make another decision, it continues on a path. Or you make a decision to get off that path and start a new path. However, the emphasis in this text, yes, God is sovereign, but we are also responsible. We are responsible with how we live. And and for me, as I'm studying this, it's a very sobering thing. Because I don't know about you, but I'm aware of my faults. I'm aware of my sinfulness. I'm aware of the stupid and dumb decisions that I've made in my life. I'm aware of my own sinfulness. I'm aware of my own proclivities. I'm aware of the wrong desires that I have to keep putting to death in my life. And this is a sobering thought for me because, for me, I don't want to start on a trajectory that leads me away from God. It's like this. I want to tell you about a different sibling rivalry, but it happened between my brother and myself. And it started because of a store called The Warehouse. Anybody remember The Warehouse? 
Yeah, okay, a couple of nods. Okay, cool. Okay. At least, as long as two of you were with me, the rest of you, you can just hang. That's fine. The warehouse was the store where, like, old school record store. So, like, but for me, I'm, like, nine, eight, nine years old. And my brother gets a CD player. Portable CD player. This is, like, early 90s, people. This is legit stuff. CD player. And I'm, like, hmm. Being the brother that I am, I'm the younger brother, you know, I kind of don't want to be like my older brother. So what do I do? I choose the cassette tape. <laughs> I do it. I'm like, oh, look at your walk, man. You got a CD player. I have a play and a fast forward, and it's square, and it's hip, and it's cool, and I have those foam things over my ears. Yes. Now, little did I know how making that decision would send me down the worst musical trajectory of my life. (laughs) Little did I know. Okay, so you guys remember the CD players, right? CD players have benefits to them. You can skip to the next song whenever you want to. And I'm like, oh, dang it, I got to hit pause, play, is that it? No, pause, play, is that it? I just got to find the stupid song, and I can't find it. Okay, so also, you know what came out that was really, really, really cool? You guys remember those Case Logic? uh, like cassette tape holders, those rectangular things, you know those things? If you wanted to be cool, you walked around with like 15, 20 of them. But you know what that means? You're walking around with a brick, just walking around with a brick, having all of your cool cassettes with you, where my brother had this like little sleek, cool CD player, you know, those little sleeves that we all had in our cars, and then we thought they're stupid, we got rid of them. Those things, we had those. And so he had those, and literally, I look back on this, and it's like, oh, I think I'm cool, and I'm hip, and I'm different than my brother but I just go backwards in time rather than forwards in time. Now, it's a, it's a trite example, but it's an example of trajectory, right? You make a decision, and then because of that decision, you go down a particular path. And little did I know that there were a lot of consequences to choosing a Walkman, okay? There were a lot of consequences. And yet, this is not only true in like the trite, silly illustrations, it's true in the craziness of life. You flirt with that person that you think is cute, and you're married. And because of that, that's one step in the wrong direction. You, you, you celebrate at your job, and you have one drink, and that could lead to another, and could lead to another, and could lead to another. The reality is our lives are chock full of decisions that we have to make. And now hear me clearly on this. God is still ultimately sovereign in this story, right? There's all this brokenness that happens. There's all this evil that happens. But God is still sovereign over that, right? However, God still uses the evil decisions of people to get his plan done. Yet, the consequences from those decisions still stay with the people. So for us, as we look at this text, I I just want it to be sobering for us. I really do. I want it to be a sobering moment between us and God and just say, okay, what trajectory am I on? Maybe you look at your your history, your legacy, so to speak, and you see sinfulness and you see brokenness. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Tonight, you can get on a new trajectory. Tonight, you can give your life to Jesus and see the beauty that he came to die for your sins and give you new life and give you the powerful Holy Spirit to send you on a new trajectory. That can happen for you tonight. And yet, 
there's some of us in here that are so aware, like myself, of our own brokenness and our own shame, that oftentimes we don't even know how to get off this bad trajectory of decisions. But we need to. And you see, what's interesting is that there's a book that's called Baptism in Fullness by John Stott. He was this 19th century Christian leader who just was a stud, wrote great stuff. And this is a 90-page book or so about what it means to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not only to convict us of sin, but to comfort us and to enable us, by God's grace, to live on a different trajectory. As Christians, we don't have to walk in Esau's ways. We don't have to walk in in the, the ways of turning ourselves away from God because the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And there's one statement in this book that just blew my mind when I read it. It says, repentance is the road to recovery. That's the key. The Bible's so clear. Paul talks all the time about us being full of the Holy Spirit. That for us to live this Christian life, we need to be full of his power and less of our own. And the only way that we can be more and more full of God's Spirit is when we recognize where we're not. Is where we recognize the doors and the closets that we shove the Holy Spirit in in our proverbial house. We don't want to give him reign over those areas. But these areas, it's okay. So 75% of the house, God, you can have this 25%. I'm going to keep. But what if that could be different tonight? What if tonight is a start of a new trajectory for you? So where as we spend some time in worship, as we choose to have communion later, as we choose to be the body of Christ, having conversations together at our dinner tables tonight, what if tonight's the night where you confess sin? What if tonight's the night that you receive the gift of God's grace? What I love in Psalm 139 is you have David saying in the very beginning, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you have known me. And then he goes on about how God has known him in his mother's womb. He needed him together. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. And then the very last verse of Psalm 139, he says this, Now God, search me and know my heart. He can say that because he recognizes that God knows everything. And yet, as humans, right, we like to hide. We like to put you know, barriers and have shame on things. So, so we just like to kind of deal in our own sin. And yet God knows. And because God knows, you can come and you can receive grace and mercy. You see, another thing about this text that's really unique is that you really see the generational sin idea. Now, for us as Americans, again, overseas, generational sin is a very prominent thing. They speak about it often. There's a lot of spiritual warfare that people think are connected to that. But the reality is, here we can say, you know, Bucky said it a couple weeks ago, hurt people hurt people, right? Hurt people hurt people. It's, it's, it's that simple. So maybe in your life, you just see the brokenness of what happens in your family, and then tonight is another night for you to move away from that. All I want you to walk away with is that God has given us responsibility to make decisions that pursue relationship with him and closeness with him. It's one bowl of soup. It's one bad decision that can lead us down that path. And the beauty of the gospel is that Christ has died for that sin so that we can have new life in him together. So Marcus is going to come up, and we're going to spend some time just having some time with the Lord. You know, Marcus will just play for a little bit. Let's just spend a couple of minutes with the Lord. So what's the Holy Spirit putting on your mind and heart?
What, what, what are the areas in which that you just keep going back to? What are the decisions that you make in your life that you know are dumb, but you continue to walk in them? What if tonight's a night of freedom for you? What if tonight is a night that you can repent of those things and truly receive forgiveness? Truly receive God's mercy in your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that there's a difference between worldly sorrow and repentance. What I've found to be true in my life is this. Oftentimes, when I've repented of sin, I've had a lot of worldly sorrow, but I haven't had a lot of true repentance. And the way that I know that I've really repented of sin is that slowly but surely, I see change in my life. Slowly but surely, I'm putting sin to death, and slowly but surely, I'm putting myself and my family on a trajectory that leads us into relationship with God rather than rebellion from him. So Marcus, come on up, dude. Let's just play for a bit. Take a couple of minutes. Just There's no time limit. There's no rush. But just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. He's already spoken to you. He's faithful to do it. He's faithful to use his word to, to convict us and remind us of our need for him.